This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. I will now ask uh, Lysin to come up and read God's word to us. Good morning. Today, we, the passage is 1 Samuel chapter 2, the entire chapter. I'll start reading from verse 1, NIV. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She was barren, has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen effort. 
Each year, his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt and the Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an effort in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age and you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength, and all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. This is God's word. Hey, good morning, everyone. Great to see all of you here today. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, 
Just really pray that you'll help us to understand the first three chapters in the book of 1 Samuel, to see how it fits in the wider books of the Old Testament, and also what it shows us about you and how we can trust you in good times and in bad times. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I remember when I was 27 years old, it was 1997, and I remember going to my dad's uh, bedroom to tell him that I decided to go to theological college and become a pastor. I remember him being really unhappy about it. He was sitting in his regular uh, chair, big chair, and he told me that he didn't want to speak to me about it anymore. And he didn't speak to me, literally, for the next two years. It was quite painful, really, because uh, he literally gave me the silent treatment. Uh, I remember studying in Australia, and he came to visit my sister, who lived in Sydney. And during that time, when he came to visit my sister, he refused to visit me or to speak to me. There was no word spoken, just the silence of a broken relationship, the sound of my own father, in a sense, turning his back on me. I remember talking to a very close friend a few years ago, and he was going through a divorce with his wife. He told me one of the hardest things about his divorce with the wife was because one of his sons uh, blamed him for the divorce and refused to speak to him because of it. Refused to talk to him, refused to take his phone calls, refused to meet up with him. And uh, it was really difficult, my friend said, because he felt that there was only silence and a broken relationship. Have you ever experienced that before? A broken relationship like that, maybe with a close relative or a friend or maybe a classmate? Painful, right? The silence of a broken relationship. But how much more so when that relationship is with God? where instead of having a a good relationship with God, there's only a broken relationship and God is only silent with us. That would be truly unbearable. Now today, as we come to the beginning of 1 Samuel, that's the situation where there is a broken relationship between God and his people. And it's really all Israel's fault. As we saw last week when we did the big overview, God had promised the forefathers of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he would give them the promised land. He would bring them into the promised land of Canaan. And there they would be as a people. But as they made their way to the promised land, out of slavery from Egypt, God met them through Moses on Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, promises were made, right? Covenant promises were made between God's people and God. And they were basically to do two main things, right? Two pretty simple things in a sense, but very difficult to obey. They were to be faithful to God alone. They were to have no other gods. And they were to obey the covenant commands and laws that God had given them at Mount Sinai. Now as we come to the book of Judges, which is just before the periods of 1 Samuel, the people occupy the land, and they're meant to actually keep the covenant promises as they enter into the land. But unfortunately, as we've seen, they enter this cycle of sin. Last week we saw there was a cycle of sin where they keep sinning worse and worse and worse. And as a result, they fail to keep these covenant promises. So the last verse in the last book before we come to 1 Samuel is verse 25 of the book of Judges, right? And summarizes the whole period of Judges where they were at. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Now, this is a very striking thing, right? 
basically tells us that even though God was the ultimate king as they came into his promised land, they failed to obey God or to follow God, and they failed to have a human leader who would lead them back to God. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. And so, everyone, in a sense, just did their own thing. They were in this cycle or vortex of sin. So the question that we really are left with now as we come to 1 Samuel, the book of 1 Samuel is, the relationship with God is broken. It's on very thin ice. What is God going to do now? What is God going to do with their relationship? Is he going to give up on Israel? Is this the end of their relationship? So we begin in chapter 1 with this person called Hannah. Now, begins in verse 1, which was really excellently read to us by Mason. There was a man, a certain man in Ramathaim, a Zuthite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives, one called Hannah and the other Pinana. Pinana had children, but Hannah had none. Now, as we read these opening words introducing us to this person, Hannah, it is striking how, in a sense, how insignificant and how unimpressive and ordinary and everyday this couple is. The names of the city where they come from, Ramathaim, this guy, Elkanah, we will never hear of again after chapter 1 and chapter 2, right? These are not the glamorous, influential, popular Instagram influential couple that you might find on uh, your TikTok Instagram. These are very humble and modest couple. Hannah herself, her situation is really sad because she wants to have children, but she's barren. She's unable to have children as much as she would like to have children. The situation is made worse because she has a rival, Penina. We read in chapter 1 how Penina keeps mocking and taunting and provoking Hannah's barrenness. She irritates her, she hurts her, and she pokes her with her words. It makes Hannah really, really sad. Right? She weeps, she cries, we see her in great emotional distress. We find Hannah then going to the temple and praying. Right? She prays really hard. She's even misunderstood by the chief priest Eli there who scolds her for being drunk. But at the end of chapter 1, we see that God blesses Hannah with a child. The question for us is, as we come to chapter 1, what is it doing here? What's the author's intent? What's the author's purpose in telling us the story of Hannah? Is it teaching us that if you're childless, you just have to pray very hard and God, God will give you kids? Or is it because if you promise your children to God, God will then give you kids? No, it's not, right? That's not the point or the intention of the author here. The key to really understanding why Hannah is here begins in the latter part of chapter 1. The baby has come. Hannah and Elkanah prepare to wean him and bring him to the temple to offer him to service under Eli. But notice what the husband Elkanah says to his wife, Hannah. Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word 
So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, if we are kind of like sensitive, careful readers, which I think all of us should be as we read God's word, this seems really strange, right? Because why does the husband say, only may the Lord make good his word? Because you sort of assume that God has already made good his word by giving Hannah a child. Obviously, there are more words that God has given concerning the future of this child, Samuel, that there is more to this child, Samuel, than we already know about. Right? So it is not the giving of the child that is really important, but what more words that need to be fulfilled about this child, Samuel. And what's really important also is within this context of where in a world where people don't know God, they don't recognize God as their king, and they do what they want and do what they see fit, we see here that Samuel is different. He went to the temple as a young boy and he worshipped the Lord there and his life was given over to the Lord. Now as we come to this chapter 1, just a very brief overview, we are struck in the sense that God is working, right? God is at work. He's at work in the sense to restore all the brokenness of this world. We see in this passage a broken world. Physical brokenness, the barrenness of Hannah. Social brokenness, the injustice of Pinana. Repeatedly taunting and mocking and making fun of, of Hannah. We see emotional brokenness, right? Suffering, tears, weeping. And we see moral brokenness, sin and wickedness all around. And last of all, the spiritual broken relationship with God. But God here in chapter 1 takes the initiative He is doing something. We know he's doing something. We're not sure what exactly he's doing, but his word has has come and has come to the person, Samuel, and Samuel is somehow involved in God fulfilling his promise through Samuel to restore brokenness to something better. Now, if that's what's happening in chapter 1, the next scene then is of Hannah's prayer. Okay, so Hannah now prays in response to what God has done. She begins the prayer by saying, Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. Or if you look at some other Bible translations, like the ESV Bible, it will say, I delight in your salvation. Now, what does it mean here? My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is lifted high. Now, if you think of animals, right? Uh, you think of the horn as a symbol of their strength, their glory, right? So, like, you know, this is a... Even, even if you think of, like, sporting uh, symbols or icons, right? Except for Manchester United or something, right? But you think of other... Other icons, right, like the Chicago Bulls, right, the horns are like symbols of like power and strength. And so what is Hannah saying here? My heart rejoices in the Lord, in the Lord my horn is lifted high. Basically she's saying that God has lifted her strength, right, God has lifted her glory. Because now she is able to overcome her barrenness. That's why it says, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. 
my salvation. She's been saved, in a sense, from her barrenness. And so she's able to boast over her enemies, to boast over Pinana, because now she's able to have children. She can no longer feel as if she's a victim here of the taunts and mocking, provoking of Pinana. So in the beginning, as we see Hannah's prayer, we think, oh, it's a very personal prayer, right? She's just praying for herself, and she's just praying that she has children, and she's praying that she doesn't have to be mocked anymore. And so at the one level, we see the prayer as a very personal prayer. But what strikes us is that as we come to the very last line of a prayer, she suddenly says this, right? He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, this is very unusual. It doesn't seem as if Hannah's praying about Samuel anymore. She's praying for a king. She's praying for the anointed, the Christ or the Messiah. Right? And she's praying for the horn or the strength or the glory of the king to be lifted up. So I like what one commentator said. And he actually said that just as in the beginning of the prayer, Hannah gives thanks because God has, in a sense, lifted up her horn by giving her a child. By the end of the prayer, her prayer has changed, right? Because she wants God to lift up the horn of his king, the horn of his anointed. So what Hannah's prayer is really doing is, Hannah reflects on her own deliverance and salvation and sees it as like a micro example, like a down payment of a greater deliverance or salvation work of God. So it's almost as if God's small work in Hannah, giving her a child and saving her from barrenness, points to God's much greater work which he will do in lifting up the horn of a king and saving the world not from barrenness, but from brokenness, right? The broken moral, physical, and spiritual relationship that they have with God. So this prayer of Hannah is not just personal in terms of Hannah, but it's also prophetic. It's looking forward to a king, looking forward to a king who will solve the problem of brokenness in this world. Moral brokenness, physical brokenness, spiritual brokenness with God. But we also notice in the prayer that it's very instructional, right? It's like a blueprint of a program of how you need to relate to this God. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. It doesn't seem as if Hannah is praying here anymore for Samuel and the baby. It's very much a sense in which this is the way that 
God is, and so because God is like this, this is the way that you need to relate to God. There is no one holy like God. There is no one beside God. That means there is no other God besides our God. There is no rock or security or safety like our God. He is a creator and sustainer God for the foundation of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the earth. He has the power over life and the power over death itself. And so if this is the nature of the God that we relate to, if this is God in himself, then how do we relate to him? Well, we cannot be speaking proudly or arrogant before this God. We must be faithful before this God. We cannot be wicked or oppose this God because he is also a judge who will thunder from heaven and he will judge the ends of the earth. And so what we see here is that the prayer of Hannah is not just personal or prophetic, but also programmatic, right? So last week, when we did the overview, we said that this, in a sense, helps us to understand what God does in the book of 1 Samuel. If you choose to oppose him, then you'll be judged. If you choose to be faithful to him, then you'll be lifted up. See, in the structure of 1 and 2 Samuel, as we saw last week, we saw that there were really five characters, right? The priest Eli, the judge Samuel, King Saul, King David, and David's son Absalom. They are the people who populate 1 and 2 Samuel. But they are not really the main characters, right? God is the one who is the main character who is there from 1 Samuel chapter 1 to 2 Samuel chapter 24. But how do we understand how God is working in the narrative? How do we understand how he's working in the events? Well, we said that within the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, there are all these speeches and prayers and visions, right? The most important of which we said last week is Hannah's prayer. Hannah's prayer, in a sense, is programmatic in terms of understanding why bad things or good things are happening within the book of 1 and 2 Samuel. So let's look first now at the priest Eli, which we did our responsive reading about, and we also heard about when Mason read to us. So he's like the chief priest at the time. In chapter 1, we come across Eli, and we're really a bit not sure about Eli, right, because he mistakes the the mournful prayer of Hannah as drunkenness. But we'll, we'll kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. We read in chapter 2 that Eli's sons were scoundrels, right? They were worthless men, it says in other translations. They had no regard for the Lord. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. So what was happening is, Eli's sons, Hopni and Pinehas, who were abusing the sacrificial system instead of following God's instructions as to allowing the sacrificial offerings to be done in the right way. They wanted to grab the food and to cook it the way they wanted before it was actually offered. They were using physical force to grab what they wanted from the, from the worshippers if they didn't give them what they wanted. Right? And then we also learned that they were having sex with the women who were serving the temple. Now, that's why their sin was really great and they were scoundrels or wicked, worthless people. But the passage really focuses on Eli. What's Eli's response to his sons? Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. 
So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. Now it's interesting, right, the language. He had heard that about everything his sons were doing to all Israel. So the sins of Hopni and Pinehas were not personal sins. They had a much greater impact, right? They had a corporate impact because they were corrupting the sacrificial system to which people could actually offer sacrifices to atone for their sins to come back to relationship with God. And these sins that they were doing were not done privately or secretly or once off or exceptionally, but they were done repeatedly, publicly, and to the knowledge of everyone. Right? I heard from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. They were spreading among the Lord's people. But yet, Eli did nothing about it. He turned a blind eye, in a sense, to their sins, so that the sins were not rebuked, the sins were not corrected, and they continued unchecked, destroying people's worship and sacrifice to God. Now, we already saw in Hannah's prayer, right, that God is a holy God. There is no other God like God. God is the rock. God is the judge. He's the creator and sustainer. He has the power over the grave and power over life. How would this sort of God react to the sins of Eli and his sons? Well, God says that he would judge them. Because Eli, in a sense, honored his sons more than he honored God. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me? Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me, I will disdain. So because Eli and his sons failed to honor God, God would cut short the days of Eli and his sons and all of Eli's relatives, and they would no longer be priests. And so as we see in the flow of the, the narrative, right, God is at work. He continues to be at work in taking away the wicked Eli and judging his sons. Now, this is an important lesson for us, right? Because as we've seen from the prayer of Hannah, if this is the nature of God, he is holy, there's no other God but God, he is the rock on which we stand upon. We cannot be proud and oppose God and honor anything else apart from God. Over the years, people tell me these moral dilemmas that they have. Right? And ultimately, it comes down to decision, right? Do we honor God more than we honor people or things? So Brent, someone told me this before. He was asked to tell a lie to a school teacher to get his classmate out of trouble. If he didn't do that, he'd probably lose this friend forever. So what would you do? Or maybe a friend or a close relative asks you to lie to his wife so that uh, he won't get in trouble with his wife. Or imagine if you know a family member who commits a crime and you know about it, but your father and mother tell you not to report it. What would you do? 
at the end of the day, it's a choice. Isn't it? Do you honor God more than you honor your friend or your relative or people? Right? Jesus says the same thing. Right? Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, if God is this God and Jesus is God, then we need to always put Jesus and God above all things. And that was what Eli was not doing. And according to Hannah's prayer, God would thunder from heaven and judge Eli and his sons. Now, we then come to this God honoring this Eli. And our attention now turns to the next major character in the narrative, which is Samuel. We already expect something from Samuel because remember Elkanah said, may the words of Lord, of the Lord continue to be fulfilled in him, right? So we come, we come to chapter 3, verse 1, and the boy... Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. He's still a young boy, right? In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. Now, this is really significant. Why is the word of the Lord rare during this time? We really know that this is a terrible thing, right? that there's this spiritual famine, there's this spiritual wasteland, they're starving for God's word. The reason why this is happening is because the priesthood is corrupted, the sacrificial system is corrupted, the temple system is corrupted. In those days, there was no king to lead the people back to God. In those days, everyone did as they desired. They were in the cycle of sin. So this is the context in which There is no word from the Lord. But we find that the word of the Lord comes. Now, really we would expect that the word of the Lord will come to the chief priest. Because that's his role. He's the mediator between God and his people. But instead, the word of the Lord comes to the boy. The boy, Samuel. And the word of the Lord actually speaks a word of judgment against Eli himself. He tells Samuel, the Lord said to Samuel, see, I'm about to do something in Israel that will make the ears of everyone who hears about it tingle. At that time, I will carry out against Eli everything I spoke against his family from beginning to end. For I told him that I would judge his family forever because of the sin he knew about. His sons blasphemed God and he failed to restrain them. And so the word of God comes in a word of judgment. But I think the word of God also comes as a source of encouragement and refreshment to God's people. See, remember, the word of the Lord was rare then, but now the word of the Lord returns, right? At the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, the Lord was with Samuel as he grew up, and he let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And all Israel from Dan to Bathsheba recognized that Samuel was attested as a prophet of the Lord. The Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word, and Samuel's word came 
to all Israel. See, this is how the three chapters hold together, right? God is at work to restore this broken world. A world where there is moral brokenness, physical brokenness, a broken spiritual relationship with God. He promises that he will do so in Hannah's prayer, and he begins to work in his judging of Eli and his sons. But we see in Samuel that he begins to bring his word. There is no longer this silence of broken relationship, but God's word now comes back to the people. Now, I think about a few years ago, just before COVID, I think, oh no, can't be my, my phone cannot be that old, right? But I bought this new phone. Uh, it's an Oppo, right? It's actually, it's actually quite good. Like, so this is not a negative uh, uh, advertisement or warning of Oppo. Anyway, when I bought the phone, I realized it was working really slowly, right? And I'm like, this is not right, right? Like, you know, when I open my apps, it's like taking forever. So I brought it back to the uh, service center at Suntec City. So I got the number, I queued up, and I gave them the phone to check. And then they're checking, 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 and they said, oh, actually, we're not sure exactly what's wrong. Can you leave your phone with us for like the next three hours so that we can do a checkup on it? And I'm like, uh, okay. So I gave them my phone and I was walking around Suntec City without my phone for like three hours. I felt naked, right? I was like, there was something wrong. I, I, couldn't, I had nothing to do with my hands. I had no, not, no, nothing to waste my time on. I was just walking around for three hours, right? Because I couldn't check my messages, my WhatsApps, nothing. So I was uh, reading this statistic that do you know how often the average American, which I presume is maybe Singaporeans even more, right, checks their social media, your email, your WhatsApp, or any messaging system? Yes, on a, on a 24-hour span, how, how many times do you think you would check your phone, email, social media, or messaging Okay, so statistically, apparently, it's 352 times a day. It's up from 96 times in 2019, right? So this shows us how we really need to be connected, right? That's like, a, I calculated, if you sleep eight hours a day, that's, you're checking effectively for messages twice, uh, once every two minutes. Lah. So it shows us that we need to be connected, right? And here God gives us his word. He gives us his word because he wants that connection with us. He doesn't want us to be in silence with him. I was reading about this uh, man who faced great suffering because his wife died. His wife died and left him with uh, many children. And as a single father, he was really overwhelmed with the responsibility and overcome by despair. What he said was, he really needed God's word. He really needed to know that God, as we saw today, is the only God, and He is His rock, His salvation. And today we've seen that God is a God who does not give up on relationship with us. He doesn't want to leave us in silence. He wants to give us His word to restore that broken relationship with us. The book of Hebrews actually tells us that we actually have a better word than even the word that Samuel gives us. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made 
the universe. See, we live in a world where someone was telling me, actually my, my son was telling me that there are young people these days who say that because the world is so broken, they don't want to have kids. Right? They say, oh, the world is so bad, there's global warming, there's so much suffering, there's so much injustice, don't want to have kids. Well, 3,000 years ago, they also lived in a very broken world. There was brokenness physically, socially, morally, emotionally, spiritually of God. And today we live in the same situation, right? Of this acute awareness of the brokenness of this world. The only way we can actually get encouragement is to turn back to God's word and to know the promises of God fulfilled in Jesus, that he is the ultimate word that's come to us. And we know that God has promised at the very end. He is committed. He is able to solve all our brokenness, moral, ethical brokenness, and the sin and wickedness of this world, the emotional, physical brokenness of everything around us, and also, most importantly, our relationship with God. So let's always trust and put our faith in this God and turn back to his word to help us to restore that faith and trust in him in our times of despair. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we thank you so much for the book of 1 Samuel chapter 1 to 3. We thank you that it reveals you as who you are, holy, the only God, the rock on which we can find our safety and our security, a God who is the creator and sustainer, the one who has power over life and death. Dear Father, we confess that we are part of this broken world and our sin and our wickedness. We do indeed live in a world which is broken in so many ways, which causes us pain and suffering. But we thank you, dear Father, for your promises in Hannah's prayer have been fulfilled in Jesus. He is the ultimate word come to us. Dear Father, we pray that we may look to him, we may turn to your word in the Bible to keep giving us strong faith during our time here, that we are not overwhelmed and we're not overcome by despair, but rather we know that we have a God who is our rock, who will lift up our horn and who will give us deliverance and salvation from these broken things. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, uh, next we will move into a time of, uh, time of discussion. So uh, please turn and discuss the uh, question on the slide with those next to you as we think through the sermon. Uh, the question is, why is faith in God so important in a broken world? Maybe we can take about two to three minutes. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.